everybody, this is Samir Salami and you're listening to Berlin Review Audio, the podcast channel of Berlin Review. We are a new magazine for books and ideas based in Berlin. Alongside our magazine, we're hosting a series of conversations in venues all over the city with some of our favorite writers and critics. In early November, we sat down with two of them, the Argentinian novelist Alan Pauls and the researcher and writer Cristina Rivera Garza, born in Mexico, to talk about inflation. Inspired by Alan's essay, written for our first issue to come out in early 2024, we looked at inflation not only as an economic malaise, but as a cultural climate that shapes the way we behave, feel, think, and, of course, write. While in Latin America inflation is constantly making the headlines, things had been different in countries of the North whose leaders had harbored the belief that inflation can be defeated and thought they had done so at some point in the early 80s. Today, however, it is clear that inflation's ghosts will continue to haunt our prices and societies, not only across the global south, but everywhere else in the world. Spectres of inflation is what our conversation could be called. A few days after our event, a particularly gruesome ghost, or should I say monster, made his appearance when Argentina elected Javier Milei as their new president. A far-right, ultra-libertarian, anti-abortion, self-declared anarcho-capitalist who owns four cloned dogs and talks to a dead one in spiritist sessions, Millet not only vows to shut down the ministries of health, education, environment or gender equality, he also wants to introduce the dollar as a means of payment, thereby abolishing inflation by decree to make Argentina great again. For an Argentinian like Alan Pauls, this revives painful memories of 2002 when the neoliberal fetish to bring the peso into parity with the dollar sparked a near-fatal financial and political crisis. In the following hour, the focus of our conversation is not so much on day-to-day -day politics. Instead, we visit inflation behind the scenes and watch her relentlessly pulling the strings, rewriting the scripts and moving around the stage sets and actors. How do we suffer and change when prices are constantly on the rise? What does inflation do to the most important of currencies, time? And how do politics and representation collide when we look at inflation as a culture, as Lebensform and structure of feeling? Alan Pauls is a prolific novelist, but also a versatile critic and author of essays. In his newest book, a poignant essay on imperfect writing, Alan offers a critical term for what makes his literature, and that of many great writers, a school of perception, narrative disobedience. You can find such poetic unruliness in his masterful novel The Past, or you can pick up one of the sequels from his Argentina in the 70s trilogy, depending on which of the following things you are most afraid of losing, hair, tears, or money. In his luxurious essay for Berlin Review, Alan immerses himself into the dizzying world of numbers gone mad and excavates the dramas that shape and distort a life with inflation. We publish his text in our first issue, both in the Spanish original and in German translation. Cristina Rivera Garza is an acclaimed author of investigative essays, historical novels, poetry, criticism, theory, and more. With a deep sense for genre-bending experimentation, she traces geographies of injustice by carefully making her case for the counter-tactics of non-forgetting, witnessing, listening to the living and the dead, spending the night in the archive grieving, 
and, as important as ever, yearning for context. Her work in English includes Ilya Crest, The Tiger Syndrome, and Liliana's Invincible Summer, a shattering examination of the structures of violence that led to her sister's murder. Join us for a conversation on inflation across the continents, on loss of anticipation, time's pressures, human coping techniques, on the political uses of monetary plagues and the delicate question of how writing becomes complicit with the hardships it seeks to depict. Alan, before we hear an excerpt from your essay that deals with life under inflation in Argentina, um, can you briefly tell us what happened in the winter of 2020 in Berlin um, and how this enriched your already long-standing experience with inflation? You mean the start point of uh, inflation here? Yes, the beginning the of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, um, I remember that I went out Uh, and went to the supermarket and the pandemics was declared, I think, the day before. And when I got into the supermarket, I saw, I found the racks of uh, the toilet paper and uh, olive oil and oils, I mean, totally empty. So I was quite shocked Because at that point, we knew nothing about the pandemics. I mean, we knew nothing about how long would it last, how deep uh, would it be uh, among us, um, how serious would be. So I was really shocked by this like immediate response of people. I mean, common people. Shocked because you didn't, you'd have yeah, a totally I had different experience from Argentina. Not that <laughs> reaction at all. I was like, it was another day. I went to the supermarket. I was looking for some stuff. But I was confronted by like a massive reaction or what I found as a massive reaction. And I felt so, so, so defenseless, you know, so untrained, because I felt that there was like a whole society trained, trained somewhere, somehow in like developing this reaction in front of some sort of unknown emergency. And it was for me like a sort of bizarre kind of trauma, you know. Then it was the trauma of the pandemics, but for me it was a supplementary trauma. I was not trained for that. Where should I go? Where should I apply? Were there people, Germans, who helped you, who guided you through this experience? <laughs> well, then I had another experience after the starting of the Russian-Ukrainian war. So the day the war at least appeared on the front page of the papers or the online papers, I went to the supermarket and again, no toilet paper, no oils, no spaghetti, no same like basic stuff which was missing uh, at the starting point of the pandemics. And then immediately with the gas thing, I felt that I visit a couple of German friends at their homes and I learned that they had decided 
not to put the uh, heating on. They did not know uh, how much would the gas uh, raise, not a clue about that, but they took this decision. This was the second part of the second chapter of the training, which I didn't follow, you know. Mm. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> In a very bizarre way, I like it, you know, but because I learned things. I, I know that now I had to go immediately to the toilet paper rack <laughs> or buy a lot, a lot of toilet paper. But I think the lesson I learned was that indeed I was coming from another kind of society who is used to deal with those things, contingency, accident, um, emergencies, in some other school, you know. We have another kind of training. Maybe that's a good moment to hear you reading from your essay, which deals more thoroughly with the Argentinian experience than the German one. Yes. Um, but thank you for elucidating us about these uh, new lessons you've learned with us. There you okay. go. Bajo la inflación, in a similar sense to the expression under the influence, money becomes brazen, almost obscene. Explicit money, like explicit sex in pornography. Life with inflation is the realm of hard cash. Any other form of payment, credit cards, checks, bank transfers, requires time and trust. But time and trust are what inflation destroys first. Banknotes proliferate, depreciating by the second. They're no longer known by their denomination, which loses all meaning, but by their color, or by the portrait that adorns them, or by one of the varying degrees of wry nicknames that street slang hath foisted upon them. Items are no longer priced in numbers. They now cost two red and one green, three reds, or two browns, one green and one blue. The stability that money's value once held lives on in the color palette of paper money. Trousers, jackets, wallets, handbags, even those long zipper pouches, perfect for carrying cash on your waist, strapped to your body, the kind that tourism once made popular and that are now back in fashion. Anything with pockets morphs out of shape, sculpted by the wads of notes inside. Clothing, hands, fingertips, everything smells of money. Thank you, Ellen. Uh, Christina, um, I may be too young or too uninformed to associate Mexico as readily with inflation as Argentina or other countries that I mentioned in the essay, such as Venezuela or Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. But if one starts to read up on Mexican history, one realizes very quickly that it is a totally structuring element of the history and society. Getting rid of money as if it's on fire. Can you relate to that? Or to which school of inflation do you belong? <laughs> What kind of training have I had, right? Uh, well, good night.
It's a pleasure to be here and participate in the launching, pre-launching of Berlin Review. Congratulations. Um, I have to say, guten Tag, which is the exchange of my German. So, okay. Um, yeah, when I was reading Alonso's essay, I so many memories were triggered. I was part of a, a member of that generation that grew up believing that a dollar uh, was equal to 12.50 pesos. And there is a sense of stability with that. And, and you touched upon this issue so well in that essay. It comes, uh, I mean, your world is stable, you know, uh, you know what can, the kinds of things that you can exchange for that. And, um, and that gives you a sense of, uh, of, of your place in the world. Well, all that is structurally affected when you're facing this um, uh, devaluation and inflation, and both of them were very much related in Mexico. And I think it goes straight to your DNA, to your interpretation of reality, to your sense of time. Um, and with that, obviously, what we got in Mexico, and I believe in all these situations, is a radical inequality that breeds violence. And I think we've been under those circumstances for a number of years right now in Mexico with the uh, so-called, the misnamed war on drugs. But uh, that I think it goes back to all this mismanagement, to all this uh, economic fiasco. Uh, in the country. But something that I found really interesting about your essay, Alan, uh, and if I could just take At any this, time. this situation, you know, two steps back, is that, I don't know if this is the case in Germany, but in Latin American literature, we don't talk about money. It's money no. is the F word of, uh, of the Latin American literature. So when I learned that Alan had written and published this book, The History of Money, I was really elated. I was finally someone was paying attention to and exploring an area that even though um, many people might think of literature as an autonomous field, as something that is developing on its own, when you start to think about money and the materiality of money, what you are saying is literature is connected to pretty much everything and affected by everything. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very curious, uh, not only about your take on inflation, But before talking about inflation, just your interest in money and how you arrived to money, you know, uh, through this literary lens. I started to think about um, writing a, a fiction book on money because I started to reflect on this daily thing of the presence of money for us, at least in Argentina, And the presence of cash money, you know, because when we talk about money, I at least talk always about cash money. And I think this thing, this uh, need of talking about uh, cash money comes from getting used to this inflationary experience, you know, like, um, because one of the things that shocked me always uh, of living in Argentina, and I've always lived in Argentina until four years ago, was that money for me was this thing, this amount of banknotes, yeah. these things that we carry in our pockets. Uh, and uh, I'm coming now, yesterday I came back from Argentina, and really it's literal, you know, my pants are now bigger. <laughs> they are bigger, really bigger, really, really bigger. I mean, I would spend there 
we are now, I think, in 150% um, per year of inflation. Oh. So it's more than mm. 10% monthly. And um, when I got in Buenos Aires uh, a month ago, I think I made this money exchanges and uh, a month later, the money uh, I was paid for $100 had raised like 20%, you know, in one month. So 20%, it's like, I don't know how to make this graphic, you know. It's a lot of banknotes, a lot of banknotes. So this experience of, for on one side, the magnitude, this amount, the experience of amount, quantity. And the other thing is the relationship between the body and cash money. I needed to write something because in my 70s experience, I was quite young at that time. This money things, in 75, we had the first, like, or at least I had the first big, big, deep and radical experience of hyperinflation in 75. I remembered very, very clearly this absolute like amazement I felt when I started to see and to get some conscience about this material presence. So I directly associated this revelation on money with my experience on the 70s. And the mm -hmm. three books, the tears, the hair and money were around the 70s. And I had this same experience you had, like why money is not a subject? I mean, it was for Emile Zola, for yeah. instance. Mm -hmm. It was for Roberto Arlt, an Argentinian writer from the 20s and 30s. Uh, but indeed, it's something that had vanished from mm -hmm. literature. I don't know. Why? Because for me, it's really, it's a daily thing. I mean, it's not an abstract thing, you know. Money is abstract by definition. I mean, the banknote is mm. an abstraction. We all know that. Mm. No, it's a convention that uh, um, rests on time and trust, no? But at the same time, in countries like Argentina or Mexico or Brazil or Venezuela, this abstraction gets totally material. Maybe before we come to the politics part of this, um, I would like to stay a bit on uh, these ways people are dealing with inflation and uh, this kind of um, experience you just described. Um, because from outside or just as a reader of the essay, it seems to me totally logical to write about money when um, you say at one point in the essay, there is a, a inflationary culture as there is a telluric or seismic culture or something yeah. like that. And the choreographies you describe that people are undergoing and are performing in order to pay something are in themselves already aesthetic. Um, so for me, it made totally sense. Maybe both of you You can uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about these ways people are dealing uh, with <clears throat> inflation and um, these predicaments of paying things under the condition of inflation in a normal choreographic, performative way. I think that the first thing uh, we do is like punk statement, you know, no future, no future. Future has been abolished. There's no future. You don't have to like think in terms of tomorrow or a week later or a month or 
So you have to like uh, set yourself in this like present mood and make your decisions in like, I don't know, in a lapse of 24 hours. This is the first suggestion. Of course, that's very difficult because it's quite difficult. It's quite hard because there's a lot of assumptions that disappear with future. And the first one of them is trust. You know, you don't trust. That's why you have to deal with economy in a cash terms. So that's why you don't trust uh, checks, you don't trust credit cards. Nobody trusts on them. And then, well, I, I've listed some of these strategies, daily strategies, to deal with inflation. You have to uh, spend your money as soon as possible to make it like uh, be useful for something. In a way, it's a very like uh, you have to get your desires, your immediate desires fulfilled. So I think that every statement I will say uh, around this matter have always two meanings, you know, one nightmarish meaning and white like, hey, it's not that bad. You have to fulfill your desires. Hmm. But because I think that this is the very weird thing of inflation as a Lebensform or a form of life, that there is some kind of twisted, perverse, good side, you know, like is some it, excitement. Is inflation addictive? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not addictive in the way we are used to deal with addiction, but it's a condition that it's a, you suffer it on a daily basis. You don't know how long would it last, you know? And that's, I think, very interesting. And uh, I was really interested by the comments uh, Evgenia made about this not knowing how long the war can last, how this uh, not knowing the time measure of an experience affects you in every way. But this is a very interesting thing about inflation. Maybe living in the present is not a bad thing in a way. Of course, all these uh, resources, all these like uh, strategies are some kind of desperate needs, you know? It's not something you choose, like, in a free context. You're never free to choose them. And, uh, of course, you not always choose the right thing to do. But there is some, I don't know if addiction is the word, but there is some excitement. You can call it stress. You can call it also excitement. In this way of understanding it, I don't know if uh, Christina has more strategies or different <laughs> strategies. So many memories come to mind. I do have books in my bookcases in Mexico City with tags in the, I don't know, hundreds and thousands of pesos. I paid 200,000 pesos for a book that I might buy now for 80 pesos. So in a very counterintuitive way, it seems like I have more money 
back then, you know, in the 80s or 90s than the money that I have now. And I think a lot of things work exactly like that with inflation. We did have lots of cash money. Exactly. So we were all billionaires. We were exactly. all millionaires. And we were never as poor as in those circumstances. On the other hand, and that's something that I started to think about when I read your essay, uh, it affected men and women in different ways. I think uh, the figure of men as a main provider was really um, taken by this transformation. Um, there were suicides, cases of depression, men being unable to fulfill the roles as providers. And on the other hand, uh, the sphere of women's activity, you know, dealing with cash, dealing with um, small um, local enterprises, I mean, mm -hmm. all that was becoming increasingly important. And therefore, what women were doing in this kind of domestic but also public arena became also increasingly relevant for our very survival. So there is an aspect of the gender yeah. relationships that, that were also transformed by inflation. And third, and I think this is more or less related to what you were saying, uh, you know, something that I learned growing with, um, you know, with my generation during the late 20th century, early 21st century, is that something that you believed as or were taught that was stable and secure, it is not. One reaction to that might be, of course, fear and insecurity. But on the other hand, you learn that there is nothing natural that nothing is permanent, that everything is negotiable, and that you might have a say in that as a, as a social group, right? So I think there's something to be gained about this idea that what we are experiencing is not there forever, is not there for good, um, and that we can organize, that, that there is some power to be discussed mm. there. And uh, obviously not in the best of circumstances, and obviously many of these discussions, uh, many of these decisions are made in the international arena and for other reasons. But at the local level, when you have to vet on your own survival, then uh, there is a space for imagination too, and for political imagination. But at the same time, we have a broader political um framework yeah. in which uh, often these um, local initiatives tend to get swallowed up by a larger um, politics that is not only, as we learned now, basically, I mean, for a broader audience, um, that uh, inflation is not only something that happens, a calamity, as you once mentioned, but I think somewhat ironically in the text, yeah. But it is often deliberately produced or it is uh, then, I mean, appropriated by certain politics, of often right-wing politics, but not only, <laughs> to um, use it as a political tool. Yeah, well, I think there is tradition. You know, the left traditionally didn't pay attention on inflation. I mean, in general. And inflation was always like some sort of concern in right-wing politics or economics. But I think this started to change in these two uh, years, these two last years since 2020, winter of 2020. I think the inflation, which was again a topic in European debates and agenda and also in the States, I think the perspective of the left started to change. So... I don't know if because the topic is now uh, under reconsideration under the perspective of the left or because the left wants to like 
reappropriate the topic, which has been like a traditional uh, right-wing topic. But I mean, um, in Argentina, we used to consider that once inflation starts, it will never stop. This is like a belief, you know, it's like religion. And uh, I read for the essay a sort of sondage, like a poll made in the 90s, and uh, the countries which were selected to answer the, the poll, uh, I think, were Germany, the States, Brazil. And one interesting thing that uh, the poll showed up was that uh, in Germany, they shared the same belief. Once inflation starts, it never stops. So this is interesting because uh, there can be like two societies as different as Brazil or as Argentina and Germany, which share the same belief. And this is like a, a very imaginary thing. But I think this is like a right-wing belief, you know? It's once inflation starts, it never stops. Well, Brazil is a good example. Yeah. It's not true. And it's also a good example how mainstream politics or party politics can make use of inflation in a better way. I read up on this and I stumbled upon this um, very decisive episode in the transition from the dictatorship to a more democratic system where basically what happened was that the government, um, the military government in the 80s in uh, Brazil faked an inflation mm. statistics. It came out, some people brought it out, some economists in Folha de Sao Paulo with one text mm. and there was a huge mobilization against um, the government that was one of the starting points of the turning over of the system. So first, it's not <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, um, of course, of course. Even if the odds are bad, but um, it can also be used as a tool of mobilization. That yeah. I found it very interesting. Yeah, well, there is these two versions, you know, the left used to say that, or the right, maybe the right wing uh, would say that uh, inflation comes from this... Uh, crazy emission of money, you know, like these central banks that uh, produce uh, too much money. And then there is like the version of the left, which says that the people, the companies or the corporations that built the prices are the responsible for the inflation. So I think there's a debate that has to be put forward And I think this is changing right now. This is not like privilege of like a topic of a right-wing agenda or a left-wing agenda. You're a novelist, Alan. Um, how is it to write under the pressure of inflation when you don't have time to anticipate well, logically? Yeah, yeah, this is an interesting question because but I think that it reveals more of the my understanding of writing than of inflation experience. But I mean, for me, writing is producing time. So I think that I tend to think that art in general produces time. So this is for me like a relief, a deep relief under an inflationary context, because I feel that when I write, and of course I'm not speaking about material conditions, which are of course... Uh, fundamental for my writing but when I write at my desk and like dealing with these uh, fictional issues 
I think that writing is something that produces this future that inflation tends to abolish. So in a way, it's my own personal, imaginary, maybe superstitious solution of the problem. And at the same time, writing, it takes place in the present. So it has both sides of the thing. It's a present thing, it's a very present experience, so it has the excitement of this presentness of inflation life or life under the inflation. And at the same time, I write to um, make some kind of future come to life, you know? So this is weird, but it's like that. At least uh, in my experience, I don't know, Christina. Well, you know, I was thinking through your text, specifically about, uh, you know, writing and meaning. And I was reminded of that work by um, Franco Berardi Bifo, Uh, I'm not so sure if he discusses this issue of meaning and violence in poetry and money or in this other book about the future, future abilities. Mm. But uh, the argument was um, more or less like this. In the context of semi-capitalism, one of the major issues, the major problems, uh, dangers in any case, is the overproduction of meaning. What he identified was a disconnect between this overproduction of meaning and what was actually happening. And it was right there in that disconnect that, that he spoke. He was interested in the issue of violence. And I think there is something to be said about that, because I do agree with you. I mean, we deal with time, we produce time as writers, but at the same time, we are dealing with meaning. And, and we might be part of this overproduction, overproduction. of meaning that, that before was referring to. So in a way, that took me to think that perhaps I am more complicit with the, you know, you, you know, the conditions that lead to the experience of violence as well. So that might come uh, through that line, the threat uh, with inflation. But that's something that I'm grappling with mm. right now. I, I don't have a position about it just now. So if I got it right, it's maybe... We didn't plan so much these two panels today as having a resonance, but of course they have. And one way to go about this is through the term of emergency that you introduce yeah. in your text and it was also mentioned. So what does it mean to live with emergencies, but also mm -hmm. to write inside of an emergency, of an ongoing emergency? And we all know this rhetoric of the crises and the crisis that is escalating and escalating. So it seems to me that you're both heading at something like the inflationary use of storytelling is not going to save us. And it's maybe even complicit with a certain regime that we live in. Well, in any case, I think it's something that uh, is my responsibility as a writer to go through, right? I think I understand what uh, Bifo Berardi wants to say when he talks about overproduction of meaning. But I don't know if he's uh, talking about overproduction of meaning in literature or I mean he talks about meaning as yeah. like no like this transcendental entity and I feel that when I write and when I read mm -hmm. also other writers I'm not dealing with this kind of meaning you know it's not this the meaning that uh, Bifo has in mind when he says that and uh, in a way 
when I write, I have the feeling that I'm underproducing meaning. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not interested in, uh, I mean, overproducing meaning has something to do at least with acceleration. True. No? Yeah. And for me, there is a relation, a very deep relation between like slowliness and meaning. So I'm a slow writer in every sense of mm -hmm. the term. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, for me at least. But I feel that this kind of meaning that literature produces or that uh, art, good art, I don't know, progressive art, I don't know how to call it, uh, establishes some kind of very specific relationship between meaning and time. And I think that what Bifo has in mind with this expression, uh, overproduction of meaning, is a also a very specific relationship between time and meaning. So I would say that uh, this is my way of dealing with the issue. And I think that meaning in this artistic and also in a certain social dimension never has to do with overproduction. Never. It has always something to do with underproduction. So maybe it has something to do with the slow thing, uh, with this like exotic movement, you know, like retire, uh, withdraw. I would say that when I write, I have some sort of withdrawing relationship with meaning. Mm. And you can build time without being like an accelerator, you know. This is what interests me in a, maybe in a philosophical level. To me, it's really important when I'm writing to be very aware of the plural origin of writing as a practice, as a material practice. So it's not only my time or what I am working with at specific moments, but the kind of uh, space, kind of sight that literature might provide for other experiences, texts and voices to erupt there together. So... Um, I guess that's the way that I found to deal with, with that previous relationship with violence, right? So in what way can writing become a hospitable place, mm. uh, an area in which we can expose ourselves, be crisscrossed by the um, explicit experiences of others? So that connection to me is truly relevant. And uh, I do believe that all of us tell stories. Uh, all of us are prepared to do that. And, uh, and as such, you might want or, not, or don't want to go through that thinking of how to achieve that. But if I call myself a writer, I think that's my responsibility. That's what uh, sets writing and storytelling in two different places. So how to reconnect with this plurality is just essentially key. I think I have a last question for you. It's also about writing. Um, there's a writer I know thanks to this program because I was invited to write a portrait of him. His name is Andre Alexis. He's a Canadian writer who grew up in Ottawa, a place where you wouldn't uh, maybe as readily associate with magical realism or fantasy. But in one of his books, I found uh, something of, uh, like a definition of literature. And he says something like, um, everything that finds its way in a book is fantasy. I feel that 
I have a hunch that, Ellen, you might agree with this to a certain extent, and Christina, you won't. <laughs> How wrong am I? Uh, uh, I don't agree. <laughs> Not uh, completely. I mean, everything that uh, gets its way in a book, it's, it's uh, a fantasy. No, we should define a lot of things there. But I would say that uh, everything that gets its way in a book uh, is like meaning, you know, meaningful and not always even because there are a lot of meaningless books. But uh, if something gets its way in a book, I think that's something that's moving, something that's transforming itself. So I would say, I would Uh, be confident and that maybe there is something like a meaning. But a meaning is, in a way, a tool. So it's not real, it's not fantasy, it's not magic, it's not uh, reality. It's a tool, something that can be used to this or that. So I would be more sober than your Canadian writer and i would say this like limit myself to say this but i think this is a lot this is a lot for me it all depends what we mean by fantasy right because i'm ready to say and to agree with the fact that everything that gets into a book is imagination right i work a lot with documents i do field work i do archival research and move uh, in a field that you might as well call Nonfiction, mm -hmm. but I do practice what is also called creative nonfiction, and I believe that fiction and nonfiction are not, you know, separate entities or autonomous entities. And uh, all of you who have have experience uh, uh, working with documents or visiting an archive, you know that you have to work really hard to connect the dots. And connecting the dots is a work of the imagination too. So, I don't know, perhaps I will need to talk more about this in the future, <laughs> but uh, what I find truly interesting and fascinating is precisely the blurred line and how we can use features associated to these different genres to interrogate and contest what we've been taught uh, you know, about the definition of these very genres. So... I might be more in agreement with your friend than you think, you know, in, a, in, in an interesting twist of things. You've listened to Berlin Review Audio, a podcast project of Berlin Review, with Christina Rivera Garza, Ellen Pauls, and me, Samir Selami. This show has been produced by Insa Langhorst. Many thanks to Matthias Zeiske and the DAAD Gallery in Berlin who hosted our conversation. You can find an audio version of the German translation of Alan's essay on blnreview.de slash audio and more episodes of Berlin Review Audio in our podcast channel. If you don't want to miss out on what is happening at Berlin Review, you may want to subscribe to our newsletter on blnreview.de slash newsletter. Berlin Review Audio is supported by the Berlin Senate Department for Culture and Social Cohesion My name is Samir Selami. Thank you for your interest in Berlin Review.